welcome down to this week's episode and a Christmas week episode of Paddy Talks Golf. As always, this show is presented by Seed Golf Balls. So head over to seedgolf.com and stock up today. What are they? Premium quality golf balls at half the price. It's an absolute no-brainer. So if you're looking for someone to buy for Christmas and it won't get there in time for the post, get them a voucher, print it off, or do you know what? Get them a subscription for Seed Golf Balls. Choose the C2s if you're stuck to know which one and they can arrive every month, every couple of months, totally up to you. Also, dudesgolf.com is the apparel that I'm wearing all the time. If you follow me on Instagram, at Paddy underscore golf. Uh, they've been really good to me, really supportive of the show. So please, if you have press play, support them as well. On this week's episode, we have someone I've admired from afar for like, Jesus, like 15 plus years. And thanks to all of you pressing play every week. Uh, he's come on the show. He's carried and carried the bag of the greats of the game. It's Colin Byrne, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Paddy Talks Golf. Um, this man needs no introduction. Um, like many people I've had in the podcast, I've stalked him for years. And with this man's case, it's decades since 2004. It was the first time I saw him. Um, Caddy to the elite of the European PGA Tour worldwide traveler, multiple book writer, Colin Byrne. How's it going? It's great. Um, I came back specially from Sea Island, Georgia to, uh, to do this podcast. So... Uh, you know, that's how, how much it means to me. <laughs> I didn't. Well, now I know I've hit the big time. Huh? When people are traveling the world just to talk to me remotely. <laughs> from from Hoth, is it you're in, Tanais? You in Hoth today? I'm, I'm in Hoth, yeah, back in Hoth, where I grew up. Yeah, back to my roots. You know, the funny thing is, obviously caddying, and one of the reasons I started caddying was to um, to travel. You know, so when I was younger, I couldn't wait to get away from home. And then I got to a certain age as I got older where I couldn't wait to get home. So it's interesting how uh, it turns full circle. That's crazy. And like, I've, I wouldn't have done a patch of the travel you have. I did work abroad for a couple of years. And even then, after a couple of weeks, I was in Italy at the time. So I have a big Maldini jersey waiting to be hung up on the wall here. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at it as we speak signed by the great man himself but anyway um it's amazing i couldn't get over even myself i'd be from a pretty you know traditional irish music background as well of how patriotic i became after a couple of weeks i never listened to as many cranberries songs in my life um would you find the same traveling the world since an early age um in terms of getting homesick not really but I mean, then again there was probably plenty of irish there's always been loads of irish caddies you know um and i remember the uh the tradition was most Mondays or Tuesdays when we arrived at an event, someone had to seek out the Irish bar. You know, that was the um, first task of the week, not walk the golf course or sort any uh, business detail out. Where's the Irish pub? So, um, you know, you're always kind of uh, home away from home, if you like. Um, but uh, so, no, I didn't really get homesick. Plus, you know, we travel a lot, but we also obviously in the era of um, 
plenty of flights and affordable flights, you know, there's a good chance you could get home if you wanted to. It's not like you had to head off for, you know, a year or years or decades and send money home and come back yourself two decades later. You know, you could always kind of get back relatively, you know, frequently if you, if you wanted to. So I didn't really suffer from homesickness, no. No, one of the lucky ones. I didn't get homesick. I was only delighted to leave. Because <laughs> for years... No, no, no. For years, I, I, was, I was one of the, one of the kids. You know, when, you're, when your parents are asked how is so-and-so getting on, it was like, oh, well, you know, kid one is what well, she's in college doing, you know, a master's. And kid two, uh, you know, they're doing great. They're doing the leaving cert. And kid three with Patrick, oh, he, he, he's loving life. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, I was that yeah. for so I, I'm okay now. But um, well, yeah, good. yeah, it's good. Part because for it's kind of funny you should say that because that's exactly how I ended up in a uh, a professional caddy that that should never really have lasted more than um, a few summer holidays from college. You know what turned out to be three summer holidays turned into three decades. Same thing. You know, uh, I don't think my parents really educated me for this, but. It's the way it turned out. So let's get into that then, Colin. So what, what would your earliest memory of golf be? Well, I used to caddy for my father, who was a good golfer. Um, he was a scratch golfer. And he, um, you know, he used to, I was obviously keen to play and follow, follow what he did, as most sons are keen to follow their, what their father does. And um, I, uh, I kind of, harassed him into letting me caddy for him. Now, he's very particular. So uh, unwittingly, he taught me to be a very good caddy because, um, you know, if I caddied for him and I stepped out of line, you know, if I made noise, if I kind of got too close to the ball, if I didn't look where the ball was, if I didn't, if I got in the green and walked in someone's line, if there was anything flapping on the bag. So like, I think golfers are particularly fussy, you know, they're incredibly particular and fussy and obsessed by detail. Now, I'm not saying that's what my father was, but he had, had plenty of the traits, uh, a good golfer. So, you know, unwittingly, he kind of taught me how to look at the detail and, uh, you know, kind of be there, but don't be there. So, you know, the last thing he wanted me to be probably was a caddy, but by his training, he, um, he turned me into a, a very fussy kind of particular caddy, which is what these guys are looking for ultimately, you know. They're looking for someone to be, um, you know, pretty detailed, sensitive to, to their needs and, um, you know, kind of somewhat worship their obsessions, you know, to a degree, to as much as it helps them. So, um, but so my earliest memories then of golf would be going down to Royal Dublin, um, uh, caddying for my father, he got me a half set. Fred Smith's um, golf club manufacturing, well, when I say manufacturing, it sounds grandiose. They had a shed. We saw the first tee that they used to make golf clubs at. Um, so they made me a half set in there. Um, I used to go down and play uh, five holes. You could go down the first and over to the 14th, back to the clubhouse, five holes. That was my loop with my... Uh, with my dad uh, and his full set and me my half set. And that was my earliest memories of playing golf. And then the Irish Open was played actually in Royal Dublin. Well, that, that was actually in later years. Um, traditionally it was played in, uh, in Port Marnock, 
the Carol's Irish Open, which was a, a big event on the European tour. And um, obviously it was a huge event here. And I only realized when I went away then to see how, how small some of the other European events were that just how big the Irish Open was. And that was back then in the, in the 70s, you know. So um, I do remember going to the Irish Open. I do remember Seve Ballesteros um, walking from a green to a tee, putting his arm around me and uh, engaging me, you know, and it, it was uh, obviously quite a strong memory back then as a young kid. I don't know what age I was, but not only was I at the Irish Open watching all these golfers, but um, somebody who I didn't realize was obviously one of, going to be one of the most legendary golfers in the world, put his arm around me and, and kind of, you know, encouraged me and recognized me. So um, that was a um, obviously a, a big memory for me as a, as a young kid and maybe subconsciously influenced my uh, future decision to, um, to, to do what I've, I've done for my, my career. Um, the only struggle with Seve was later I realized what he was like, which uh, burst my bubble a little bit, but we won't go into that. <laughs> Never meet your heroes sometimes, or sometimes they, they, they um, exceed your expectations. Turning Caddy, like, yeah. it's, something, it's something that I thought about for a while, um, and I didn't really know how to. So you went to college first. Yeah. So what, what did you do in college? I did business studies, so um, yeah. Um, uh, and I've never used it. Uh, yeah, never even thought about using it. I mean, I, I um, so I used to caddy during the summer holidays. I caddied for uh, David Faherty, um for most of my summer holidays. So that, that was probably back in the time when the European tour was a lot shorter. So, um, you know, it probably started in April and ended in uh, the end of September. Obviously, I didn't do all of that because, uh, but he was happy enough for me to do um to do from June after my exams up till uh, the end of August or whenever, early September. Um, my only regret with David Faraday was that I didn't keep a list of his one-liners because he was riddled with them, you know, even back then, he was just a very sharp wit, you know, who, um, who would have comment for everything as he does now. And, uh, you know, he's, he's naturally gifted as a uh, announcer and a TV presenter, but that was always within him. It's, it's something that came naturally to him. But um, so that's that's how I started. Just about to answer, you know, it was a lot easier back then um, to actually get into it because there were more players available than caddies, which is not the case now and hasn't been the case for some time. Where there's way more caddies than there are players. I mean, there's always a few players going, but most, you know, most of the ones that are available don't have anywhere to play these days. You know, um, so you know, back then you kind of um, you know, a better opportunity if you were willing to travel, take a chance. Um, so I remember distinctly what I did was my summer holidays came. I um, I went down to the south of France where the next tournament was. was. I looked at the schedule. Um, I think I took the train down and uh, stood in the car park. And, um, you know, again, and, and actually in the car park with me was Steve Williams. And we all know Steve Williams was turned out to be probably the most successful caddy of all time, um, uh, having caddied for Tiger for so long. But, um, you know, that, that was the era where you could go down, present yourself. The chances are you get a bag, and then if you're any good, you, you get invited back for the same bag the next week. Um, 
so you know it was, it was a totally different era now then again it was a totally different era in the sense that if you broke even you were doing well you know it, it was more the sense of adventure again i always wanted to travel that was my primary um motivator for going away and you know you can imagine the first year as a as a young guy you know first year in college uh summer holidays where am i i'm in a new place every you know in paris one week uh down to madrid the next week maybe over to rome all these great cities and you know getting paid for it it, it was the most amazing thing and back then we kind of used to whoop it up a bit as well it wasn't quite as serious i think if you turned up and you could you could uh you know pretty much stand up you were you were acceptable which obviously uh isn't the case anymore so it was a totally different era sense of adventure you know if you're willing to do the job you could uh, you could do it you know and really didn't require i suppose too much skill some certain understanding of the game but nothing uh nothing to the degree it is now so accessibility was way easier you know and, and you know if you're to ask me the same question now how do you do it I, I really don't know other than you know hoping you know someone that can give you um some some sort of start you know certainly the um the uh, profile of caddies has has changed considerably you know i was i was mixed in with you know there's a smattering of maybe you know college educated kids or you know, uh, golf club members, you know, there's a smattering of us mixed in with the seasoned caddies. So there was, uh, there was certainly an initiation period in the, in the caddy shack where the, uh, you know, the, the seasoned gnarly old caddies, you had to, um, you had to uh, get by their uh, initiation tests, which was a series of pranks and aggression, you know, but if you could withstand that, you were, uh, you know, somewhat accepted into the uh, the caddy shack back then i'm talking back in the 70s you know so um you know again the make the makeup of the caddy shack now is uh totally different in terms of both background um you know from a, a social point of view and um background from a golfing point of view in fact you could argue that there's uh there's probably you know as many really good golfers on the um U.S. tour for sure. A lot of them have uh, have played golf in college. They've you know turned out they couldn't make it, so they've the next best thing is to caddy. You know, a lot of them keep in touch that way, but um, a lot of them would have been plus handicaps, really good, and and aspired to play themselves. And in fact, a lot of them did play on tour themselves, um, and couldn't uh, couldn't keep it up. So, you know, everything has changed. You know, you say the game has changed. It evolves. It's it's certainly evolved in, since I started caddying. Um, every aspect of it, and um, and particularly caddying, um, you know. And then it's evolved even more so of late. That's more from a probably technical point of view. But I'm drifting on a bit, so maybe you want to interject, Port. <laughs> I know when you're in a good flow, I just leave the guest go. It's it's great. All stuff. those good questions, yeah. <laughs> um. My listeners know that um, I do it. It's a it's a it's a professionally unprofessional. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like um, I suppose back when you started, and maybe up, I suppose until the Tiger era, mid nineties, that it, it, if you wanted like the gap year of all gap years, caddying was the way to go. Would that be a good way to describe it? Absolutely, absolutely. That's kind of what I said. You know, it was like a you know. 
each each week a new adventure in a new city you know what what more could you want you know while you're maybe even your player was playing well you get in the mix you know and um you know have the the, the chance of a decent percentage check and uh yeah and you know just the kind of in the back door into the main stage of golf you know it was um it was a, a nice nice way to slip in you know but um as i say uh you know the whiff of drink wasn't uh, wasn't as a as criminal offense as as it would be now on tour it it uh, it kind of has changed dramatically you know most guys now are talking about what they were doing in the gym the floor they went to rather than uh, you know some amazing pub and, and nightclub so um you know that's uh, such as the era you know went and and that's you know and I, I could probably apply that to the players as well you know when i started um you know, I kind of get the impression the players were relying on talent alone, you know, and the rest kind of, you know, they, they kind of just plodded along and the talent got them through, you know, whereas nowadays it's, you know, multi-talented golfers with a um, very strong sense of professionalism and work ethic, you know, so, um, and fitness and everything else. So, you know, the whole, ga- the whole game, as I say, has to us with it. Massively. One more question about, like, Turn professional caddy, and then we get into like the intricacies of of how the expectations of a caddy in the modern day, right? Mm-hmm. So it was seen as an opportunity to travel. What was the compelling event to stay on tour and keep grafting? Was was there a certain week or occasion uh, or dinner or swing uh, was, advice? <laughs> recession in in, in uh, Ireland in the eighties. Uh, I got my degree and thought, um, if if I've understood you correctly, what like you're saying? Why did I? Stay caddy. End up doing it again. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd caddied in Europe. I thought, you know, well, why not stretch it a bit, head down to Africa, go over to Australia. I used to spend the winters in Australia um, back when the Australian tour was thriving. Um, there was a pretty strong, because Greg Norman obviously um, brought a lot of kudos to the Australian tour back then. He was still playing. He used to play in the winter down there. Um, so... You know, the result was there was plenty of tournaments. It was a good way for me to while away the winter. Um, I used to make yardage books with um, with a Canadian caddy friend of mine who we um, we caddied in Asia, made books, you know, could kind of balance travel with caddying um, a bit better back then because the, the, um, the schedule wasn't as packed. So, you know, it was, again, the, it was Wanderlust that got me going. Uh, you know, which was satisfied in Europe for the first few years. And I thought, you know, why not go a bit further, which is which is exactly what I did, you know, including Africa, Asia, Australia. I, n- I never really got to America. I, I always knew I'd get there at some stage if I was going to continue caddying because obviously it is the mecca of, of golf, always has been, always will be. Um, so, you know, America was last on my list. Um, but obviously I got there and I've, um, I've kind of exhausted that list as well. I think there's somewhere else to go next. Any ideas? Um, but um, yeah, so it wasn't really a, um, you know, I kind of drifted, kept drifting more. And, and plus, you know, I suppose the money started getting a bit better back in uh, late 80s, 88. I think I I got my degree, 87. And, um, uh, you know, you could actually if you got on the sponsorship started getting a bit better for the players. Uh, I worked for one of the 
top Swedish, original Swedish um, players that were really well sponsored and, and, you know, kind of treated caddies a bit differently. They were looking for, you weren't just a caddy, you were part of a team, which was very much the Swedish mentality. So I worked for Anders Forsbrand for a few years. He kind of, um, so it was elevated my status as well. And then made me realize, you know what, you know, if you apply yourself a bit more and, and take this more, more seriously, you could probably, you know, do a bit better and, and uh, you know, arguably make a living out of it. And then, of course, the purses started getting better. And then I stuck with it for a while longer and along came Tiger and the purses started multiplying. And, um, you know, I, I started uh, not only surviving, but um, started making a profit out of caddying, you know. So um, I suppose it was just it was just the time I was in. Um, whether it was a conscious decision or not, it, it just became more feasible to keep doing what I was doing. And mm. plus, I didn't really have anything, any other uh, uh, strings to my bow. So I, um, you know, it wasn't like something else was tugging at me to... Uh, to leave what I was doing, so um, and I enjoyed it. And you know, it, obviously, it's I'll say it now when I'm in my fifties, but I suppose it still is a young man's game, if you like. I mean, that has changed. There's still a lot of older guys caddying now, but I suppose realistically, it does um, lend itself better to a um, a younger single guy or girl rather than. Um, no codger like me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's time for me yet, so I'm thirty. I'm maybe thirty-four. Oh, plenty so plenty time. Plenty time. And plenty time. Um, I need yeah. to increase my daily step count with a with a heavy bag though to get anywhere near bag, the, yeah. the cardio levels. Attitude. It's not the bag that weighs so much, Pork. It's the heavy attitude coming from your player. That's the. Uh, it's all performance related, you know. The weight. The heaviness. <laughs> yeah. um, you've carried for some of the best golfers in the world, and and some of like all of our idols. You know, Ernie Els, Retief Goose, and win yeah. the open, the U.S. Open with with Retief, and then a couple of weeks yeah. later is when I first saw him on a fairway in the K Club, winning the yeah. European Open with Retief, and he glided to victory that that week effortless. Uh, on to, and forgive me if I miss someone out, but the greats of the game and these modern days as well, Alexander Narn, yeah. my all-time favorite, Mister Knuckles himself. And yeah. um, modern uh, day, modern day, Savio almost in Rafa Cabrera Bayo, you know, top yeah. fifth in the world, played the Masters a couple of weeks ago, was my long yeah. shot, made the cut on the number, yeah. or close yeah. enough to the number. That was a highlight um, of the week, I'm afraid, yes. Us um, <laughs> in a position to either uh, knock out nine guys or keep nine guys in the cut, we were right on the edge. So it's amazing the attention you draw when, uh, when you're in danger, knocking 10 guys out of the cut, you know. Anyway, um, the, the, there's a lot of relieved faces when I went to the caddy shack after that. You know, everything, all eyes have been on you for not really the right reasons, but yeah, it's amazing. Are we working the weekend or not? Yeah. And, and like you said, their expectations have changed. Like even like elite amateurs' expectations have changed and how they approach the game. It's quite scientific, numbers-driven, performance-based, high-performance-based. Every, every box is ticked. You have a team. It's not just you rocking up with your bag 10 minutes before the tea time and firing away. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I suppose what's, yeah. what's, what's a week like for you you know well, yeah. these days yeah you know it's gone from as I said back in you know 30 years ago to you know if you showed up in time that was good enough and you had some sort of yardage book we used to, I used to make my own yardage book which was actually quite satisfying and actually quite educating as well because you um, you know if you walk around a course and map it out yourself 
you actually know the course way better. And and it was always one of the um, the great qualities and attributes of Retief when I caddied for him because nowadays, you know, both the player and the caddy tend to carry their own book. Whereas back then, it was more just the caddy, you know, so he was totally reliant on the numbers you gave him. Um, whereas he was more kind of getting in touch with the shot, more feel, more, you know, just generally awareness rather than, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen how they operate now, but this, you know, the younger guys, they have these greens books. I don't know if you've seen them. They're kind of I don't agree with them, but, you know, that's well, a Bryson debate more than anything else, but it's more than Bryson using them. Technology, I'm afraid, they're hard to, hard to change it now. But, um, you know, you love the likes of these modern young kids who won't even kneel down and, and read a putt, read the actual contours. They they kind of look at a book and go, that tells them how, to, how you know, they, they measure out the, the distance of the putt. They look at the angle, look at the slope. And that's how they read a putt. You know, it's all, again, it's, it's the men with white coats have taken over. Um, whereas back in, back in my era, probably the, the most important thing was providing a, uh, some reliable or somewhat reliable yardage, you know. Um, and I always remember distinctly when we did our books, it was like the old 10, 10 penny piece. I don't know if you remember that. That's what every green looked like, perfectly round, you know. It was back in this <laughs> simplified golf. You know, everything was fairly basic, but it, it, it did, did for the time, you know. Then along came the wheel, you know, we used to kind of step it out. Then along came the um, measuring wheel. Then along came the laser, you know, and um, now we've got satellite yardage books. So the yardage book is a given, whereas it used to be something that we had to work on and spend a day doing and getting right, you know. So in that sense, that's made a lot easier. But then the demands have changed to, um, I suppose, more than demands on top of decision-making, um, which I would argue is always the players, you know, my, my mantra is the caddy advises and the player decides. So, um, you know, now what you say has a huge bearing on the decision they make. So you've got to choose, choose your words carefully and, um, you know, you don't want to mislead them. You're trying to help them make a good decision, but you still are helping them rather than making that decision. And, mm. and it's a very clear line that, I always try and instill in who I'm working for, you know, um, take responsibility in other words. But, you know, so then you move more into the psychological aspect of it. And that's, that's increasingly, you know, reading moods, knowing what to say, when to say it, you know, you can say the right thing and the wrong thing, even though it's exactly the same thing, depending on when you actually say it. So it's, mm. um, you know, the, the psychological part has some of us, you know, might offer our um, advice and swing. You, you, I mean, you know, you're looking at the guy swinging all day. Sometimes you're looking at too much. You don't see too much. You're better stepping out and in of it. But you know, you you kind of keep an eye on that. Keeping an eye on his uh, his routine. If he's keeping the same routine, you know, all these little things that that contribute to making the big picture a lot better. So, you know, whereas. You know, back in the day, it was if you, you know, you turned up and kept up and shut up and did the job. That was all that was required. Certainly, it has evolved to doing um, way more things and even companionship. You know, you're usually the reason you last with a player is, you know, a number of things. Success is one of them, but it's based on compatibility as well. You spend an awful lot of time with these people. 
so you've somewhat got to get on with them, you know, and, and um, it's something I'm always aware of at my age, in my uh, mid-50s, that, you know, a lot of the guys are younger now. So, you know, I've always thought maybe they don't want to feel like they're old man's caddying for them. You know, they have to have something in common, even though they want the experience, they also need to be able to relate to them. You know? So, um, you know, that's important for a lot of guys. So a lot of guys have, have younger guys that would be more compatible compatible with uh, younger players, you know, and have more in common, I suppose, you know, sense of uh, being on the same page, same level. But, um, you know, so there's a, definitely the, um, the, uh, the job description has, has widened, varied, and, you know, although it's pretty much the same for everyone, it's subtly different for each player as well. You know, I'm sure you've seen the dialogue that um, uh, Phil Mickelson used to have with, with uh, Jim Mackay, his caddy of up till last year, two years ago, whenever they split up, you know, they were very long relationship. I think it might have spanned two decades. I mean, their their dialogue was, um, um, you know, fairly... Uh, Crazy refined, very focused, you know? Well, very focused, very lengthy, very detailed. Now, if you gave that to other guys, they'd uh, you wouldn't last a hold, you know? So, in, in you know, you've got to adapt to what the player needs to make them tick, you know? And that's it's not something that's kind of man management and uh, just kind of cop on that you can figure out what the, what the person wants, you know, from you. And, and, and it may vary, you know, so you've got to kind of read their, uh, read the moods. And I've always argued, you know, I can kind of tell by how my guy says hello to me in the morning, what kind of mood he's in. So therefore how I need to tailor my, um, my way of handling him to try and get the best out of him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, that would have been the same with the first team, Le Hinch. You're yes. dealing with a guy for six hours and yeah. how his mood is when he says hello to you would depend on how much crack you get out of him and that would depend on how much your tip was in about five hours' time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and sorry, you know, going back to Le Hinch, because I know we, we did a little bit of cat, we, there's a couple of us got together to do some caddy training. We went down um, and uh, trained uh, should I say, spoke to some of the, the caddies in the Hinch. They're very hard to train. They seem to know it all. But um, uh, I want to be one of them now. You're talking to, to Huey now or, or someone like that. <laughs> someone who's there too long. <laughs> and they did know a lot in fairness to them. But, um, you know, uh, Paddy Keane wanted us to get in and, uh, and have a chat to them. Yeah, we had a good time down there. And it was a great, great opportunity to try and um, relay some of the, the tales on tour and, and you know, that works for professionals, but um, you know, I, I didn't realize till I went down there what a what a a rich part of the the whole culture that the golf club and the Hinch is, you know, and, and how the um, in the summer holidays the uh, the actual school used to open up later to accommodate the uh, the golf season, so that the mm -hmm. kids you know, have to, didn't have to go back to school and they could continue caddying for those two busy uh, weeks at the end of the summer. So um, yeah, it's interesting how. Yeah, you know, and all that obviously has been lost. The the the, the local caddying is is um, is in Ireland is is you know exclusively for um, you know almost exclusively Americans and maybe a few other nationalities. But you know, no, I agree. The, yeah, yeah, it's kind of at the at the premier sites. It's there, you know, the Lehinches, the Jumbegs, Buddy Bunyans, whoever's on that American yeah. tour. Uh, yeah. to some degree in Port Marnock and um, yeah. and Royal Dublin yeah. still. Like, I learned how to caddy from 
um, one of the older members of Lynch uh, when yeah. I was around 12. But then every year, um, J.D. Smith, he won the South of Ireland in the 60s. Yeah. He used to run like a junior member uh, kind of etiquette slash caddy school. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like you were saying there with your dad, the line, try to stand. Yeah. What's on yeah. the pin you stand at when it's a long putt? Yeah. Yeah. You know, doing our own yardage books and stuff like that. And, and you know, Porg, if I could be, uh, have a little, um, little rant or be a bit preachy, you know, I mean, etiquette is, um, you know, something that, you know, I've never understood how, you know, we're always trying to attract new people to golf. And I think the pandemic has, uh, has successfully done that, even though it's taken a pandemic to get to revitalize golf, it seems, you know, but, um, you know, you can't expect new people to golf to understand the etiquette unless they've actually been versed in it. And, you know, they seem to be more versed in the latest technology than the actual fundamentals of, you know, not only the rules, to me, what's even more important is etiquette, you know. I'd agree there, you know. I don't care where you drop it, but just don't step on my line. (laughs) But, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's an important thing. I, I remember distinctly in Royal Dublin, Okay, the, when I was going in as a, a juvenile member, the um, almost the first thing that struck me was the uh, the ten points of etiquette. You know, uh, you know, and, and they're they're ingrained. You know, and they seem to have um, slipped by the wayside. You know, and it's just important for everyone to to uh, it's a it's a sociable game. It's about playing. Uh, you know, it's an individual game. It's also a very sociable game that you play with others, and it's I think it helps. You know. It helps each player playing, you know, when they take an interest in the other person's game and just, you know, you can help each other along. And I find that in tour, you know, I actually, Jason Day is probably one of the best players to play with, the Australian, you know. And I, I remember saying to him, we played with him a few times, I said, God, you know, you're one of the rare modern players who actually genuinely tries to pull every everyone, whether it's a two ball or a three ball, you know, two other players or one other player with them and, and, and raise the whole mood of the of the group, you know, because, um, you know, it's, it's easy for a lot of guys to get isolated and totally uh, insular, you know. So, um, you know, it's good to see that. And it's, it's a really big part of the game. And uh, I'll stop preaching now, but it's, it's important to, um, you know, to recognize that and, and, and keep it going. No, absolutely. I completely agree with you, you know. Um, people who know me is pretty laid back, um, kind of bringing a GAA approach to the game, just in terms of it should be enjoyed, you know, for the vast majority of us, it's it's a hobby. We send, spend our Saturday and Sunday mornings at it, but there's a, a time and place to be, to be shouting and hollering, and that's when you hold a birdie putt. It's not when you, when you, when you fire a good one up the first, yeah. do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely you know, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely another, a place as far as in the game, um, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, another another thing is with, and particularly with these younger um, younger pros, you know, obviously, a round of golf now for some unknown reason could take five hours, you know. But um, that's another issue. But uh, you know, you can't concentrate for five hours. You can concentrate for twenty minutes, maybe. You know, an intense concentration when you're over the ball, you know, and. Sometimes you got to remind these guys that you know it's important to step in and step out. So when you're walking and in between shots, you know, get out of it. Forget about the game. Forget, you know, talk about something else and get out of your own head. Um, and that's what the best golfers do. And I, I do remember Tiger being a master of that. 
in his prime, and I'm sure he still does it, that he, um, you know, he loved having a chat in between shots, but when he was over the ball, he was in a hermetically sealed bubble where you could not penetrate it. That's, you know, that was his zone. He was in there for 10 or 15 seconds. Then he got out of it and, you know, uh, took his head out of there, you know, because obviously you drain yourself if you try to try to concentrate for the minute you teed off till till you finished on 18, you know, so... Um, Okay, imagine the migraines you had if you even tried that. I've kind of that's why I've kind of approached stuff in the last couple of years to being very laid back. Is you know I did a bad shot and I talked myself quite severely, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it, that does not that is not conducive to better golf. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, something that I've always intrigued me, and something maybe you know maybe the European Tour Content Social Media Committee will take on board is what is in the professionals' bags. Right, they're massive. So there's obviously 14 clubs, maybe some alignment sticks, a track man down the side, some waterproofs. But what else does Rafa carry or would have? Apart from too much, yeah. <laughs> Apart from too much, yeah. I always, I always make the, um, make it, I always make the joke that uh, the only time Rafa empties the bag is when he's going to the airport and he's afraid to get charged excess luggage. The rest of the time, everything's in it. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, what's in the bag? Uh, yeah, he he carries a mirror that he uh, that's his alignment thing. It's not for doing his hair, and um, uh, he practices with that. And so that's in the side of the bag. He'll have other gadgets. The golfer isn't complete without a gadget these days, as I'm sure you've you've seen. Um, whether it's a putting device or some swing aid or something. Um, most times, two sets of uh, two sets of waterproofs, um, depending on. You know, weather-wise, we need sweaters and a dozen golf balls, you know, wrenches and screws to readjust the modern clubs. Um, uh, what else do we have in there? We would have, yeah, tees, uh, all sorts of, um, uh, probably a shake, a protein shake, um, plenty of water. Yeah, and, and the bags themselves weigh a ton. Now, the one thing, when we were in Asia, when we go to Asia, where well, we used to go to Asia in uh, October, November for a few events, um, I would always load up with a supply of Korean umbrellas, which are the lightest umbrellas in golf. Um, so I would have a, uh, a steady supply of those because the umbrella is, um, is obviously a heavy uh, extra to be carrying. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what's in there. Too much. Too much. No, deadly. From, I suppose, three plus decades of caddying on tour, and it might, mightn't have been a shot you'd have hit yourself, but is there any particular memory of, of a high-tension situation where you had to give a very specific advice that we were under pressure and it was a success, you know, it turned out well? Does any of the, like, a memory stick out, might be from your teeth? And... Uh, I think, yeah, I suppose, yeah, on the... Um... 16th, the par five on the Sunday. Um, we, uh, you know, it was back back then. It was it was almost unplayable. It was like concrete, you know. So it was a matter of trying to leave yourself full shots to uh, to greens. Anything that was a half shot, you had no hope of getting near the if if you could get it on the green. And he could have got on, but um, in two. 
But then again, if he missed, it would have been, you know, the chance of him getting up and down were, um, were really slim. And in fact, of making a bogey were probably greater because it was like playing ping pong over the greens. So um, somehow I convinced him to, to lay up to within a full wedge shot, a full uh, sandwich shot, which he did and hit it to hit it close, you know, um, which I don't know. You know, you look back, maybe it made a difference. Um, I think we ended up winning by two in the end, which you never know, could have, you know. Um, maybe that buffer, it gave him a buffer, you know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, maybe it did, I, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I got to say, over the years, it tends to be trying to scrape a cut that's been, you know, some of the heroics for making cuts has been um, probably more memorable than things tend to be going your way when you win a tournament. Things tend to be going against you when you're missing cuts, you know. So, um, you know, some of the best battles, I think, over the years have been trying to trying to scrape a cut, you know, or cajole the guy to thinking again, just keeping them positive, keeping them try to keep going and keep trying, you know, is, is a big thing on a Friday when it looks like all is lost. So, uh, um, yeah, so that would be the one, one thing that sticks out, Porg. No, it's a good one. It's a good one to have. Quick fire Q&A. So whatever comes into your brain, you ready? Colin Byrne, what would your walk on? Um, walk on song. I got to say this quickly. Uh, how soon is now the Smiths? The Smiths? Oh yeah, I'm, I went through. I went through a bit of a phase in my teenage years, and yeah, I have, I have a couple of those on Spotify. Um, Jim or pizza? Uh, probably Jim. Are you a hat visor or bucket hat type of guy? Um, whatever um, the sponsor pays the most with. That's the best answer I've gotten since I started. Uh, Happy Gilmore or Tin Cup? Uh, tin Cup. Walk or cart? Walk. Win the Masters or win the Open? Open. Instagram or Twitter? Neither. <laughs> uh, play or practice? Play. Fair play to you. Now, this is kind of like a bonus question, right? Before we, we ramp up the exit music. Colin, you're, yeah. you're, you're home now for a couple of weeks, so you might be putting together like a hypothetical dinner here, right? Um, and you can have any six people you like at the dinner, dead, yeah. alive, celebrities, golfer, family, whoever. For Colin Burns' dinner party, it's you plus six people. Who are the six people? The six people, let me see, let me see now, let me see. Mahatma Gandhi, um, uh, he'd, be, he'd be one of them. Um, uh, Jonathan Miller, um, a, uh, let me think, say John Banville. Uh, um, who is a great John Arlett, the great um, uh, cricket commentator, Richie Benno. Um, how many have I got there? Five. You have five now. You've one to go. And one to go. Some other um, great. Ah, uh, yeah, Nelson Mandela. That is that is quite. Uh... Quite, quite a table to have and some, some serious conversations to be had. Colin Byrne, thank you so much for your time. I'll give you some more back. And uh, I look forward to maybe seeing you on the fairways okay. closer than closer than the, than, the, than the patrons in future. Yeah, and it's, it's never too late to caddy, Porter. Never too late to caddy. Thanks, Porter. 
that was Colin Byrne what a gent what a man actually a qualified um, like journalist as well so exceptionally well spoken check out his books check him out I'll put the links to them on Amazon below and big thanks to Colin for his time and his insight into life on tour how to be a caddy and, and how things have changed over as years have passed by Thank you all for pressing play this year. It's been a difficult year for everyone involved. God was on, it was off, you know, COVID-19 and impacted people's lives. So I hope you're all healthy and well this holiday season. Do tuck into turkey, ham, chocolates, booze, you know, peppermint teas, whatever is your fancy this Christmas. I just hope you spend it um, happily with family and friends. Uh, thank you all for pressing play. And um, there's the one little thing of the winner of the Paddy Talks Golf giveaway. So over 200 people are now part of the timesheet at paddygolf.com. So if you haven't joined, please do so. As there will be hopefully in 2021, you know, golf days and more giveaways and all that kind of jazz. So I'm looking forward to doing a bit of that next year. I said there'd be a giveaway for Christmas and there is one. It's two days to Christmas Day and I scrolled through all of the registrants on the timesheet and I went up and down and up and down. If you want to see a proof, it's on the Instagram stories. But Declan McNamee, congratulations, my friend. Uh, I have been in touch with you uh, via email, so check it. Um, send me your address and we'll get this hamper of goodies sent out to you. As a massive thank you, thanks to Seed Golf and Drew's Golf and Glendalock Whiskies and uh, Taylor Mid Tour and um, P2 Grips for donating and also to Peter O'Keefe for donating a screening as well. So get you up and running for some golf in 2021. Get the body set. Thank you, Peter. I'll be talking to you soon. And yeah, so well done, Declan. Congrats on the win. An early win for 2021. I look forward to continuing to press record throughout the year I hope you'll still be there press and play uh, and as long as you are I'll press record have a lovely Christmas a lovely new year and we'll talk to you in 2021 until we tee it up again soon I'm back